And I challenge the entrepreneurs in IVF. It's like, show me and prove to me that this is a real product with a market rather than just an engineering exercise. Because the engineering is always outstanding. And I, I love the engineers because they're so passionate about what they do. And frankly, they're so good at what they do. But translating that into, okay, how much are we saving the patients? How much better are we going to do for those 7 million or 6.9 million people that aren't being treated to get them into the fold? On today's episode, I bring back Dr. David Sable. We talk about venture capital, not private equity doing consolidation, but venture capital and scaling the technologies that are going to take us from a quarter million IVF cycles to over a million in the United States. We talk about artificial intelligence. Before I get into my conversation with Dr. Sable, I want to give today's shout out to Dr. Sainam Karibchen. She is at Columbia University. She used to listen to the show back when she was still in Florida. She's been listening for a long time. And so I'll know that if I get an email from Dr. Kripchen that she's still listening. Shout out to her today. In the conversation that I have with David today, it's a pickup of where we left off a year ago, but going into more specifics. This time, not about private equity, but about venture capital and the solutions that need to be scaled by funds like his and others that would come from Silicon Valley, as opposed to PE firms in Wall Street, and artificial intelligence, and how both of those are connected to each other. And it's the job of the entrepreneur to solve the chicken and the egg conundrum of scalable solution and funding. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Sable. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Sable, David, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin. Always a pleasure. I went back to, I think it was episode 16 or 18. You were one of the, so 70 some odd episodes ago by the time this episode airs. And I went back this morning and I re-listened to it and reread the transcript because I wanted to have a, a different conversation. The other one was great, but people can go listen to that one. I don't want to duplicate it. And in doing that and in having you heard you speak in other venues now, I understand more the delineation that I don't think I understood about your focus before, which is I often talk about, I think of Wall Street and I think of private equity, I think of consolidation. And in, in hearing you speak, you're more focused on scaling solutions that can get us up to a, a million cycles, at least in, in the US, as opposed to just a, you know, a quarter million uh, and, and a smaller, you know, consolidating a smaller pie. You're, you're interested in ventures that scale that. Uh, artificial intelligence might be one of those. First, can we just set the stage with why why scaling is the is the bigger picture and what opportunity is there? And then we'll get into uh, AI. That's a great question. The uh, yeah, from back from when I practiced, I remembered very well 
seeing a bunch of patients uh, for first visits and thinking, boy, there's a good probability that they would get pregnant, they do very, very well, and we would never see them again. And one of the reasons was because the out-of-pocket costs were high. And just going back to you know my first year college economics uh, and the relationship between supply and cost, and it just gradually occurred to me, it took years, I should have figured this out earlier, that IVF industry is, you know, it's selling a very, very high quality product at a relatively high price. And when you cross that with the number of people that suffer from infertility, plus the number of people that in theory could be benefited by doing IVF to prevent genetic disease and fertility preservation for oncofertility, we're looking at just treating a small fraction of the people that we could be helping with a procedure that's really good, that's uh, been around for 40 years, that we know is you know, done properly, is very safe. Going back and studying other industries that you know, were in this position and you had to scale up. You know, one way of scaling is just to keep replicating and making more of what you've already got. That's not so easy with IVF because you know, laboratories are expensive to build, physicians and scientists uh, very well trained and very good at what they do. So one of the things that we need to do is you know, kind of rely on some technology to, to do that. You know, just to give an idea of the scale of the problem, you know, any piece that you read about infertility in the United States, for example, usually quotes somewhere around 7 million people with infertility. And in 2018, using IVF, which is really our by far our best treatment for infertility, we created 74,000 babies. Now, every one of those 74,000 babies is wonderful and a miracle and is a result of great work by the industry. But that's less than 1% of the people with the problem. And I would challenge anyone who works in healthcare to come up with another area of healthcare where the number of people we're helping, where the percentage of people we're helping is that low. So that was kind of our starting point. So back in, you know, over the past 10 years, I've kind of looked at, all right, well, where are, where are the bottlenecks? What's keeping people from coming into the industry or you know, accessing the service? And, you know, that led me to study other countries and look at the per capita usage of IVF elsewhere and even look at other industries and say, well, what, what fueled scale there? And uh, that's kind of, kind of brought me to this focus on you know, innovation, innovation capital, and, and tools like artificial insemination. Excuse me. <laughs> artificial that, intelligence. That once, an, once an RE, always an RE. That's right. That's been pioneered. <laughs> artificial intelligence is one yeah. of the technologies that can scale. Um, but let's identify those bottlenecks uh, that technology might be able to solve for before sure. we, we talk about the technology. I'll let you decide lab or clinic bottlenecks to talk first, but what are the bottlenecks? Yeah, let's, let's talk about two. Uh, first investment we made with the venture fund was into cryo storage. And uh, people may know the company Tomorrow Life Sciences. It's a company that is tackling this problem. And you know, it's one of those things that gradually crept up on us. Like when I started doing IVF in the late 1980s, early 1990s, just about every embryo that you made was used sometime during the cycle or was disposed of, discarded at the end of the cycle. We weren't very good at freezing things and it was not a problem. Over time, we started freezing embryos, usually at the cell stage, 
and maybe we would put back three or four and maybe we'd have one or two or three or four left to freeze. Typically done manually, we would use Dewar tanks and liquid nitrogen and label the uh, specimens sometimes by hand and there'd be a clipboard hanging on the wall. And it was, a, it was adequate. The solution for storage and tracking and quality control was appropriate for the volume that was going through. You know, fast forward to now, over a couple decades, and now we're putting back one embryo at a time. We're making many, many high, many, many more high quality embryos per stimulation. We're doing egg freezing for proactive fertility management. And the number of specimens has just proliferated. So you go to other IVF programs, you go to big high volume programs, and the number of doer tanks, these, these kind of tanks that came out of agriculture are just all over the floor. And maybe there's, you know, many clipboards or kind of rudimentary tracking systems by computer. And it's become really a logistical problem, not only keeping track of them, knowing which specimen is where, hoping the labels don't fall off, things of that sort. But, you know, we've seen in the past few years, laboratory failures and laboratory failures and putting the wrong specimen with the wrong patient. And, you know, these, these should be never events. You know, 21st century technology, this should never be happening. So, uh, you know, one of the bottlenecks was simply dealing with this kind of supply chain logistics of thousands to 10,000s to hundreds of thousands to now millions of specimens, every one of which is dear and really requires very, very high level care. So using you know, robotics, using very high, high, high quality analytics and RFID tagging. Uh, we're now going after this problem. And this, this is good on all, all levels. You know, it's good for patient safety. It's good for scaling up the field. Like imagine going from the you know, 280,000 cycles a year to a million cycles a year, just how much that would inc increase the number of frozen samples that we had to deal with. So it was, it was one of the areas that was thankfully more of an engineering than a science problem, but it's being tackled in a very high level way. Uh, second area, an area that we're just trying to figure out is, you know, we mentioned before using IVF to prevent genetic disease. But one of the bottlenecks there is, you know, it's now cheap to get sequenced. You know, we can get genetic information very, very cheaply and very easily. You know, you, you and I could send our saliva samples off to a numerous number of companies and for a relatively low amount of money, we can get sequenced, which is terrific. We can do the same thing with embryos. We're working on technology to do that with sperm. You know, really fabulous work. Problem is the bottleneck there is taking that information, communicating it appropriately to the patients so that they and their clinicians can properly act upon it. You know, and that's genetic counseling. You know, in the United States, there's one genetic counselor for every 80,000 people. So we have the ability to reduce people's risks for serious genetic disease from, you know, times 50% to zero, you know, just, just incredible technology. But in order to put it into place, we need to widen the bottleneck through the genetic counseling part. And that's something we're trying to work on. And these are, these are things that oftentimes need not only manpower and know-how, they need technology. So that's kind of the uh, two of the, you know, when I, when I first, went out to raise a venture fund to do innovation in IVF. I had my list of 18. Now that list is up to 24. And uh, 
you know, a year from now, if, if you're kind enough to have me back to talk again, that list will probably be in the 30s. But uh, that's the kind of thing we're trying to you know, chip away at. So it might be good to give a cursory definition of venture capital versus private equity, because yeah. I hear the two used interchangeably in the field very often. I hear fertility doctors saying venture capital owned groups and well that's private equity and i think even experts might degree disagree on, on the definition to some degree and sure. also there's a venn diagram where they overlap but could we generally accept the definition private equity investing in existing business typically for majority control to either create more efficiencies or at least create more profit to sell at an upside two to five years later is typically the is that, is that typically a, a good definition for private equity? That's a better definition than the one I usually use. Okay. I, I, I get asked this a lot. And the simple, the simple answer I give is private equity is buying the lottery ticket after you know the numbers have won. Venture capital is buying the lottery ticket before you know what the winning numbers are going to be. So it's a very different investor profile, very different risk parameters. And it's a, you know, they're, they're both very important in terms of growing industries and growing businesses. But it's really, you know, the, the imprecision of the definitions aside in common use, it's really two very, very separate entities from a finance standpoint. And venture capital is typically not taking uh, a controlling stake in the, in, in an operating role in the new venture. Is that, is that usually the case? It really depends. Yeah. The, uh, in, Biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, uh, there's been a movement lately for some of the super highly specialized venture firms to do their own company formation. And they'll bring entrepreneurs in house and incubate ideas and then go out and uh, you know, kind of launch the company to have other funders come in. You know, the uh, issue with venture capital is these are companies that normally are not making any money. They have no revenues or minimal revenues. And the product development cycle in some cases could be as long as a decade or more. So it's a very specialized type of company. Within the IVF world, we're still in a more traditional model of venture capital where you have an entrepreneur who is often self-funded or bootstrapped or friends and family funded in the very beginning, sometimes working out of their own garages, literally. I've, I've seen uh, you know, groups that work out of, you know, basements and uh, whatever space they can have. And then they try to attract you know, high, highly risk tolerant investors to come in and buy usually large stakes of the company, but having only an advisory role. You know, most of the companies that I've been investing in, you know, I, I do, I, yeah, I do speak IVF and I do speak finance. So I'll often join the board of directors or join the advisory boards and try to be helpful, but at an arm's length way. I don't get, I don't get my hands dirty. Sure. I'm not doing the experiments. I'm not, uh, you know, but uh, I too try to be somewhat active in it. Uh, the control really depends on the individual company, how much money they need and how much they're willing to seed. We as investors need to be careful to keep the founders and the entrepreneurs incentivized to really keep pushing and, and living the uh, living the dream of this company. Uh, so we, you know, in an early stage, we don't really want to take financial control or take a majority interest because these companies will often go through serial rounds of dilution, and you don't want the 
entrepreneur, the founder just being like shut out by the time it becomes profitable. But you're, you're correct to say that in venture, we, we usually don't take controlling interest, but it can be still a very large interest. Okay. So private equity generally purchasing something that's already making money, venture capital typically trying to start and scale something that has not yet made money or maybe has made little money and really bring it to scale. I heard you say once at a conference that relative to our size, there's far less VC in fertility than there is in other subspecialties like oncology. Am I understanding that correctly? And can you give the specifics? Very much so. Uh, VC in fertility is almost non-existent. Uh, there is some crossover to technology. The what's uh, generally called the femtech area often bleeds into fertility. There's, talking about your Venn diagrams, there's a lot of really fabulous uh, entrepreneurs, many of them young women, which is terrific, uh, doing work in uh, women's health, taking technology to various aspects of women's health, including fertility. Uh, but in general, the uh, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars that you see in oncology and in some of the other areas that uh, in biotechnology just dwarfs anything that we do. And there's an entire infrastructure of specialized venture firms, specialized bankers. It has a real pipeline. You know, when you come with an idea that if this idea resonates with, uh, you know, certainly the, the right group of people in that pipeline, it's a very, it's a very well-paved road. In the uh, fertility side, it's very, very spotty. It's the way oncology was 15 years ago. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. You know, one is that it's easier to generate the types of data in oncology that resonates with the investor community. And it's easier to model financially where these companies can go. But the truth is, and you alluded to this before, you know, in oncology, we have 15 million people with cancer in the United States. We have about 7 million people with infertility. Oncology uh, attracts tens of billions of dollars of innovation capital to looking for treatments for, for oncology. And uh, fertility is you know, just a tiny fraction of that. You know, it's in the low, 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 low digit millions. And you know, people will say, oh, that's cancer and people die of cancer. But anyone listening to this podcast knows just how kind of life stopping infertility can be. You know, it's, it's not a, a trivial matter. It is a, it's an incredibly you know, life-altering event. And there's no reason, you know, one of the things, one of our jobs as entrepreneurs and uh, people that want to grow the industry is, is to grow that, uh, grow that financing apparatus. And that's something, you know, we're, we're, we're working to do. So I, I still don't understand why it's so nascent, but also why, why is it not more... Uh, involved in the practice model or the clinic model. And the, what, what you're talking about is creating efficiencies in, in technology and uh, in, in the lab and with tank storage and, and what we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. But could VC also be applied to the practice model where right now private equity is purchasing practices using mostly using the existing model, making some efficiencies mm -hmm. here and there. Couldn't venture capital be used to launch a new practice model. And perhaps that's part of what 
kind body is doing. But we've had Dr. Robert Kiltz on the show a couple of times, and we've had Dr. Mark Amos on the show uh, uh, to talk about um, their models. And I think, isn't there a way to scale this where you're creating a new model where you have one REI for 800 people and or, or 800 cycles, but you've got a multitude of IVF coordinators, you have a multitude of ultrasound techs, and you have advanced providers doing things like IUIs and, and retrievals. And isn't there, why hasn't VC come in to create uh, a model that can, can get more cycles in? Oh, I love I love the question, and uh, I like to put the word "yet" in there because one of my you know one of my kind of dreams for as we as we scale this all up is I would love to create a uh, and you may be too young to know this reference, but I'd like to create a Bell Labs for fertility. You know, Bell Labs is something that came out of uh, back when AT and T was the only phone company. Uh, they uh, funded a essentially was like a like an engineering think tank where they just tackled one idea and one problem after another and put them out into the world and saw how it worked. I would absolutely love to create a well-funded 20,000 cycle a year facility where we would treat patients and obviously had to be the highest level of medical care we could. And we did our work in step-by-step fashion and try to figure out what worked, what didn't, and start expanding the types of patients that have access to IVF. Now, this would likely be a very different patient experience than exists now. And you know, the patient experience right now, it's, um, let's be honest, IVF is always terrible from the patient standpoint. It's a horrible thing to go through. However, the practices that I've, I've known well, and you know, by and large, I think the it's not because people don't want to do, you know, make it as comfortable as possible for patients. And it's a very patient-centric industry. But if we're going to do that next million cycles for minimal out-of-pocket cost to the patients, and if we're going to find five or six million cycles for China and the next several million cycles for Europe and other areas of the world, it's likely to be a very different patient experience. But that, yeah, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome likelihood has to be any lower. You know, I'd love to see models where we can create a very low cost model, much lower hand-to-hand touch, but some alternative you know, method for it. And at the, at the end of the day, the patients have the same likelihood of having a healthy baby that they would from the existing model. And I don't necessarily see this competing with the industry now. It's, it's, it's a kind of a, it's, a, it's an industry alongside it. You've, you've probably heard me use the hotel example over and over and over again, which I do. It's like IVF right now is it's kind of a Ritz-Carlton Four Seasons model where for $1,000 or $1,200 a night, you get a wonderful night sleep in a beautiful setting. And we need to build the Hiltons and the Sheratons and the Holiday Inns where you still get a good eight hours of sleep in maybe a little bit more Spartan, but still clean and well-run and, and well-managed setting. We need that in IVF. And I would love to take a, you know, X number of millions of dollars and build a prototype for that. It's not an easy amount of money to come by to attract investors, but, you know, in, in the times when I sit there drawing things out and saying, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did that? That's certainly something I'd love to see happen. Getting from idea to tangibly putting it on the ground is not simple. 
but I would, you know, I, I would love to see sometime the next five to 10 years where we have that. And that could be a springboard to using innovation capital or venture type risk capital for the type of more patient centric rather than tech centric building. But ultimately these things are gonna converge and uh, you know, maybe by the year 2030, we're gonna have one and a half million high quality, low out of pocket cost uh, IVF cycles in the United States that still feed an extremely vibrant industry. To talk more about why venture capital has not entered the, the fertility field, you, you gave some reasons. I still am not totally understanding why not yet. So please talk a little bit more about it because I really want to understand. Sure. Well, think about investing in general. You know, it's like you go to what, what Warren Buffett does, the value investors. What they do is they, they look how much cash a company generates in a given year. They turn it into a savings bond or a lottery ticket type uh, equation. And in a very rational mathematics driven way, they say, okay, that cash flow is worth X dollars to me now. And that's how I'm going to invest in it. Very rational, very, you know, unemotional. It's, 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 it's a great investing model. Yeah. Move back as you kind of take stepwise risk and say, okay, well, let's think it's, let's say we can't define that cash flow or let's say it's not a very well-run industry or the industry has tremendous competition or it's one that's very volatile, then it's a much higher risk tolerance. So Warren Buffett's not gonna invest in those things. You've got a different type of investor. You've got a more risk tolerant investor. And then you, and, and then you get to higher risk things where let's say you're not making money at all. Yeah, that's where the, you know, the venture world invests in companies that are not making any money or have no revenue. There, they don't want to do irrational investing. They still want to bring a discipline to what they do. So they want to do a different type of risk mitigation. We talked before about oncology attracting tens of billions of dollars of risk capital. That's because in venture capital and oncology, you can actually model out with a much, a, a pretty good degree of certainty and discipline, the likelihood of how much money that is ultimately going to, going to bring back to you. Now, the revenue may not come for two years, five years, or 10 years, but we've done oncology drug development over and over and over and over again. We can apply risk metrics in a very disciplined way using predictive analytics, using statistics, using our knowledge of epidemiology, our knowledge of the number of patients for given uh, entities, so that the venture capitalists can put together a portfolio of risk mitigated things, you know, so that they can feel comfortable that they're not just throwing darts at the wall. Okay. In, in IVF, we're, we don't have those metrics yet. It's one of the areas that we really need to flesh out so that when I go out to raise a venture capital fund aimed at IVF and I start talking to the, uh, in the high net worth investors, the pension funds, the people that put money into the well-known venture capital funds, they'll say to me, okay, well, what are you, what's your risk management strategy? And they're gonna expect the same type of well-known numbers that we can plug into models that have been used over and over and over again in investing in drug development. And I can't do that. I don't have those numbers yet. IVF is still very much, you know, you and I have talked about this, that each lab, no matter how high functioning, they have their own way of doing things. 
their data management has been much more rudimentary than in drug development labs and in, in, in the biotechnology industry. So I go to these investors and I say, well, here's the opportunity, you know, 7 million untreated people with an, you know, it's like, look at the, look at the ability we have to grow this industry from $5 billion to maybe $50 billion over a few decades. They love that. But the risk mitigation that these professional investors have, we don't have the inputs yet to make them comfortable enough for venture investing. We have it for private equity investing because that comes from just good accounting. Yeah, P&L. You know, it's like you, you, yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty straightforward process. So it's a, it's a work in progress. You know, a few years ago, I talked about venture investing in the IVF world and people just didn't want to hear it. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to do the first fund and keep it relatively small was just a proof of concept. Let's show we can do it and you know, go out in you know, maybe this next year, this next 18 months and say, okay, we showed we can do it. Let's build on that. And hopefully five years from now, there'll be a number of you know, well-functioning, high-functioning name brand IVF venture vehicles that'll start doing for our part of the healthcare world what's been done in oncology and inflammation and some of the other areas. Are we in a catch 22 then, David? Are we missing the, the, the funding of the chicken that would provide for the egg that might be solutions that provide us with data that allow you to have those metrics to, to paint the risk mitigation picture, like using artificial intelligence to, to get some of that data. Are we, are we in a, a catch 22 where you need the funding to be able to get better data and vice versa? It's our job not to make it a catch 22. So it really is our job to pick out those projects that can be really a proof of concept to show that, okay, let's, let's stratify the needs within the industry and start picking off the highest value ones, showing there are businesses within them. Because each business we put into place, each time we take one of these analog pattern recognition artisanal pro, you know, processes and replace it with a data-driven and data-generating uh, alternative, we make it easier to isolate and define the next one that we need to tick off. And ultimately we're gonna reach critical mass where, okay, we'll be able to, using the same type of analytics that the oncology industry uses to prove their value proposition, and we'll be able to do the same thing. But it's, you know, it's, it's that's, that's the challenge now. That's frankly what makes it, uh, makes it a great thing to be tackling. And at this stage, we can make you know, the incremental investor coming in to reproductive medicine can potentially have a much greater influence than the incremental investor coming in in oncology. You know, which is not to say that oncology doesn't remain a terrific area for investment. It does. But when you're spreading out your, you know, you're triaging your capital within healthcare innovation, it's our job to prove that a lot of that capital should be flowing into reproductive medicine. And that's what we're doing now. You know, so it's, we're in the early stages. And you know, if, it's, if it's a chicken and an egg issue, it's our job to create the chicken and create the egg. Yeah, I suppose that might be a good summary of responsibility for the role <laughs> of the entrepreneur. Yeah, we like, uh, we like eggs in reproductive <laughs> medicine too. Yeah, seriously. 
Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only $5.97 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. Um, so you have 24 companies that your fund is invested in at the moment. You have 24 companies. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm being misleading if I can. Right, the fund one made four investments, four very well-targeted investments. We have you know, now 24 bottlenecks in my, 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 my grand list of things and problems that I need to solve to solve the big problem. And we're just trying to pick them off one after another. Uh, that list is, is the list grows, and sometimes some of the things that we thought were two problems turn out to be one. Uh, it's a dynamic thing, but uh, I would you know, love to be in the position where I'm invested in every one of those solutions. But it's incremental. We're starting from the beginning, and uh, that's okay. That's so there's a lot. So if there's 24, and you you made four investments in the first fund, then then there's a lot that you don't like. That it doesn't doesn't you don't like it enough to be able to invest in it at, at that point how does artificial intelligence perhaps factor into what you do like to invest in or help you start to peel away the bottlenecks so that you can't actually invest great question well the easier that it, the easier that we can make it that any outside observer can see unequivocally what the value proposition of any intervention is then the easier it is to push something along. So artificial intelligence is, you know, in its purest sense, it sees things that we don't as humans. It's smarter than we are. It is able to crunch more data. It's able to assess inputs that we just don't have the capacity to do. You know, you can take, you know, artificial intelligence has visualization problem, you know, uh, abilities that we don't. You take defense technology off the shelf that's used to uh, scan you know, meteorology or satellites, things of that sort, and you apply it to the ability to assess the dynamics of embryo development or embryo appearance or eggs or uh, gene expression in sperm. There's no way that we're going to be able to do that just watching. And, that, and then we use those capabilities to get a better outcome. You know, okay, let's plug it in and see how much better we can do in the dollars per baby 
and time-to-baby calculations that really fuel all of you know, the throughput through IVF. So in that way, artificial intelligence can be terrific. Now, the challenge for artificial intelligence, and this is a conversation I've had with so many entrepreneurs who are doing brilliant work, is we need to be able to show that it's the artificial intelligence that fueled the difference in outcome. And this is where we get down to something that I call the IVF data problem. With IVF, there's a small number of things that we know how to measure. Number of eggs, fertilization percent, percentage that goes to blast, the genetics of the embryo, and then pregnancy. And pregnancy can break down to pregnancy and then ongoing pregnancy. There are so many confounding variables in between all of those that it's difficult to isolate any particular one in order to show that a given intervention made a difference. You look at the two things that were adopted most quickly over the past few decades in IVF, ICSI and pre-implantation genetics. Yeah, ICSI was great because you had an intervention and immediately you had an answer as to whether it made a difference. You know, and I remember in 1992 when we started doing ICSI, we had these entire populations of people that we never helped before, that suddenly it became routine. You know, it was, it was, for one day it was impossible, then it became a miracle, and then it became mundane. It was just beautiful. It was, it, was, it was very, very rapid innovation because we could see we went from no fertilization to fertilization. You know, it was, it was terrific. Pre-implantation genetics, it was a little bit slower, but in the best of cases, things like balanced translocations resulting in habitual pregnancy loss, we went from no normal embryos to normal embryos, no ongoing pregnancies to ongoing pregnancies. So we could match up very quickly the intervention to the outcome. With the innovations that we're doing now, since we have these small number of things to measure, an engineer will come to me with a brilliant piece of engineering and say, okay, we're so much better at predicting which embryos should go back, for example, or which eggs will, with fertilize with ICSI or fertilize normally, turn into blast. And that's a great piece of knowledge. But then we ask ourselves, well, is it a business? If we're gonna make it a business, how do I translate that, that extra input into lower dollars per baby or shorter time to baby? And that's the challenge I give the entrepreneurs as they come to me. And we try to work these things through. And you know, it, 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 may, it may mean that we have to string some of these innovations together before we can do the type of clinical trial that'll you know, pass what we call the so what test. You know, when we walk into an IVF center and talk to the head of embryology and the head of the doctors, and they say, we get it. You have me at hello. I can provide better care here. Or for the same amount of throughput, same amount of doctor hours, embryology hours, I can see that many more patients because I'm getting that many more people pregnant faster. You know, we've got to walk it through those, you know, those various steps. And it's challenging in IVF. doesn't mean we can't do it. And the great One of the thing challenges that, that is a common challenge you see among your entrepreneurs, not knowing exactly how the pricing will work. I've seen entrepreneurs really struggle with, okay, so we have a solution. We have an AI solution. Great. Do we charge a licensing fee? Do we charge a licensing fee by clinic, by volume, by doctor? Do we uh, do a per case price? Do we try to not go the clinic side and offer this as an add-on to that, that patient's could opt for and and it would be passed on to the patient as opposed to being incurred by the practice who would then ostensibly raise their 
IVF cost or not, depending on how it affected productivity and outcomes. Is this, is this how to price and who pays for it a common challenge you see among your entrepreneurs? Oh, absolutely. You know, this is, this is one that you and I could spend the whole day talking about, you know, because, you know, pricing is such a hot issue and it should be, you know, it's important because we're triaging resources. What I challenge the entrepreneurs to do is to, you know, specifically define your value proposition as best you can. And then we can figure out the best way to, you know, who's best in the position to shoulder that risk. You know, in many cases, if we show that something is universally helpful, then the IVF clinics can, in all good faith and in a very patient-centric and patient-helpful way, just adopt it uniformly and raise the price of their cycle a little bit because ultimately the cost to the baby, the cost of having a baby is lower. If we haven't stratified, if we can only demonstrate that it helps a certain number of patients, then we need to say, okay, well, let's define who we're helping and how much. And then again, we can make a rational decision as to who should bear the cost. Because if it's only, only helping a certain percentage of the patients, we can decide who it is, then maybe we're both best off charging that as, you know, I hate this term add-on because it's such a, such a uh, controversial term. But if it's a rational distribution of these costs in a way that ultimately helps the patient, then you know, we should be able to run it through a financial model and say, okay, here's the best market, here's the best way to market this. The same thing the way things are done in the tech world, the same things the way the same the way that things are done in the consumer discretionary world. You know, pricing is just one more part of the distribution model, which comes down to who's benefiting and who wants to pay that, who wants to buy that incremental benefit. And once we start defining these midway endpoints, yeah, so we can define the value proposition, then it becomes a lot less a question of who's being exploited or an arbitrary, you know, know, who's making an arbitrary decision to just dump the cost on the patient or eat the cost as a practitioner. And it becomes just much much more of a hands, hands and arms distance kind of rational. It's like, all right, well, it's pretty straightforward. Here's who we're helping. Here's the quantification of that help. And let's just do it in a way that uh, that's fair for everybody. Straightforward. If the value proposition is really compelling, and it seems, right. that, of course, this is every entrepreneur and every commercial venture's challenge. But tr- having a truly compelling value proposition, because other, if it's not, there is not more room to just start to. to providers already feel like, oh, this employer benefits companies taking fifteen percent. United or Aetna's holding us over the coals now and have dropped their reimbursements and are we just adding this on as 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 a add-on if we're talking about pgt and in the case of the patients they're already just saddled with cost after cost so the value proposition has to be really compelling exactly you're preaching you're preaching to the choir because this is you know when you said before there are things i don't invest in and i tell them it's it's the same way in my my biotech fund that i've been running for years is i tell the companies that come in and say, I love what you're doing, but I'm investing, I'm not writing grants, and I can't invest in science projects. And I challenge the entrepreneurs in IVF, it's like, show me and prove to me that this is a real product with a market rather than just an engineering exercise. Because the engineering is always outstanding. And I, I love the engineers because they're so passionate about what they do. And frankly, they're so good at what they do. But translating that into, okay, how much are we saving the patients? How much better are we going to do for those seven million or 6.9 million people that aren't being treated? 
to get them into the fold. And, uh, you know, and it's a challenge. And, and what's great is so many of them, and this is just an engineering mentality, they say, okay, well, that's one more problem to solve. I'm going to get back to it and I'll get back to you. And that's kind of the kind of energy that we're injecting into the IVF uh, engineering world, which is a, a tell you, it's, it's not a group that gets a lot of attention. These are incredibly impressive people. So the number of funds that you've invested in is, is much smaller, maybe one sixth of the potential problems that you could invest in. What are those that ha- either that you have invested in or plan to hope to in the next 18 months? What are some of the, the value propositions that they aim to solve? Talk a little bit more about that. Okay, uh, well, you, just just as a correction, uh, you said the number of funds I've invested. I only I invest in exactly. individual one, companies. One fund, four companies. Is that right? Individual companies, right? Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we we've invested in uh, you know we talked about cryo storage, which has been terrific. We are investing in a company that's doing kind of biotech work and target discovery in women's health. Uh, you know, people have you may have heard of the company Somatics. Uh, this is a company that was. Uh, putting together a fabulous data asset for a long period of time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it did not find its place in the market, uh, despite the quality of the engineering work and the, the information uh, technology would be outstanding. Uh, they pivoted over to target identification in therapeutics. And in women's health, similar to the fact we don't have too many targets in and things we know how to measure in fertility, that goes all the way to women's health. Uh, you look at the diagnoses we have in women's health, you know, preterm labor, preeclampsia, premenstrual syndrome, even infertility. You know, these are, these are observations. These are not molecular level diagnoses. And our understanding of women's physiology and endocrinology, it's, it's been the same hormonal pathway for 50 years. No one is expanding on it, except for this company. So talk about digitalizing a process to be able to prove interim endpoints that make a difference. You know, it's just, I was, I was incredibly impressed by the scientific work they're doing. Relatively early stage, but this is a, yeah, they kind of own this, this little area of the marketplace. Uh, we're looking at hormonal testing, uh, alternate means of delivering that portion of the IVF cycle that involves doing one after another blood test for hormonal testing. Incredibly inconvenient for the patients themselves. Extremely big infrastructure that the centers in one way or another have to set up. You know, phlebotomists, blood drawing, running the tests, communicating the results back and forth. This is really kind of busy work that costs the cycles an incredible amount of effort and time, nursing energy, inconvenience to the patients, uh, but still has to be done to provide a good cycle. We're investing in a very novel way of doing this, you know, that should, you know, as it unroll, uh, unfolds, completely streamline this process and also uh, moves into other areas within, uh, within women's health. We're also looking at, uh, you know, we, we talked before about genetic counseling and trying to scale that in a tech way. This was a, uh, we're, we're looking very carefully at the, you know, telemedicine and its relatives, you know, different ways of propagating and leveraging a, a small population of genetic cancers 
and you know, along the same lines, fertility practitioners, embryologists, in ways that lets them expand beyond the borders of their four walls, or even you know, you know, beyond satellite clinics, let's leverage the cloud in ways that let us bring technology, you know, let us take what the limiting factors are, whether it's labor, whether it's uh, bottlenecks in interpreting information, and let's, let's expand that. Yes, those are you know, four you know, broad brushstrokes, but those are uh, some of the areas that we're, we're looking at. In some cases, they are direct attacks on the specific bottlenecks, you know, for example, the cryo storage. In others, they are the enabling technology that we're trying to uh, you know, put together so that we can attack some of these other bottlenecks. And uh, everybody always asks me, okay, well, list the bottlenecks for me. And I can't do that because that's the basis by which I go out and I attract investors. So they don't want me going out and telling the world. But you know, it's, it's really kind of taking our insider knowledge of the industry and uh, you know, putting it to work to try to pave that road so we can start attracting those tens of billions of dollars of innovation capital to our area of healthcare, uh, the same way it's going to other areas. In the last example you gave of telemedicine, how much has COVID and the restrictions that were relaxed in COVID either accelerated that initiative or changed the landscape before if you practiced medicine in Illinois, if I'm not mistaken, and you wanted to see someone in Indiana or Iowa or anyone in a neighboring state, even if they were, were in, we could say we're in Buffalo, New York, and just talking about Erie, Pennsylvania, that if they see the patient in their physical office, well, they don't need a medicine, they don't need a license to practice in Pennsylvania. But if they see that same patient via telemedicine, they would normally need a Pennsylvania license, if I'm not mistaken. And then you have through the enforcement of OCR and HHS in, in HIPAA had to be on a, a certain number of, of platforms or specific platforms. Those restrictions were laxed when COVID happened to the point where it said, if you want to FaceTime, you can reimburse for it. If you want to do Zoom or, or yeah. non-secure platforms, you can. When something like that happens, how much does it change the you're, you're out to solve this problem anyway, and then e- this either throws a wrench in or it, it douses gasoline on the fire to make it better. Talk about how things like that can change the landscape. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, well, you, you've been very on top of uh, how COVID has affected the uh, uh, fertility industry. It's, uh, you, you've, you've so well covered a number of times what's been going on there. What is, you know, obviously COVID is just a 100% awful thing and it sucks that we have to go through this. On the same hand, it has brought to everyone's attention that there's some really built-in inefficiencies to the, our delivery of healthcare that certainly filter into the delivery of uh, healthcare in the fertility world that need to be you know, knocked down and that anybody can see. You know, it's like one of our companies, a you know, company called MedAnswers, which does you know, physician counseling online, does genetic counseling online, clinical trial recruitment, all sorts of things. Yeah, and there's a lot of well-meaning regulation in place, you know, and there's also a lot of not so well-meaning use of misunderstood regulations like HIPAA that people use to kind of get in the way of the delivery of patient care. You have something like COVID come along where you have to close up offices and keep people quarantined and keep people distanced and things like that, where an obvious answer is remote care. And suddenly it's a lot easier to go to regulatory bodies or whoever else has thrown up these barriers and say, hey, you know, what gives? We want to provide good care. You are regulating our providing good care 
and yet you're providing you know, you know, here where we most need it. You, you, got, you got to start addressing these things. Let's put this at the top of the agenda. So it's been very important that way. Similarly, uh, you know, we talked before about alternative hormonal testing, things of that sort. A little company called Uva, which has got a technology that goes beyond just lines on a, on a pee stick you know, and starts quantifying things. You know, it's, I know the clinic owners I've talked to, they want to keep seeing patients and the patients want to keep being seen, but they want to do it where they don't see the patient, they go into the office less. So in a way, it has accelerated the recognition that these alternate versions of providing care are better versions of providing care in many cases. So it's, you know, I, I will never say the pandemic was a good thing. It sucks. I hate that it ever came. And you know, it's like, if I could wave my magic wand and make it go away tomorrow, I would. But in the same way, you know, as a crisis comes along, it does magnify some of the inefficiencies that are holding up the marketplace. And if our goal, you and me, is a million new cycles in the U.S. and 5 million new in China and 15, new cycle, 15 million more cycles a year in the world, let's start knocking those barriers down. And if it takes a crisis elsewhere in healthcare to demonstrate the need to do that, all right, you know, let's, let's, let's point to that as a, uh, as a reason for it. It's certainly been a catalyst. David, I'll let you decide how you want to conclude. We can uh, conclude with your thoughts on artificial intelligence or venture capital. You can use this as a plug if you'd like to invite some high net worth people to participate in your next fund. I'll let you decide how you'd like to conclude. I'm going to conclude as a plug for what you're doing. Yeah, this is, a, yeah, you, you have provided an extremely unique serial view of a tremendous number of people into this industry that really nobody else is doing. And uh, I think that you know, anyone interested in the type of stuff I'm doing is uh, really best served by tuning in every Tuesday you drop a new episode. Every Tuesday, it's like you're, you're, you're on uh, fre frequent on my playlist. So uh, let's, let's conclude it by, by, by plugging, uh, plugging what you're, uh, you're doing. And, uh, and again, and uh, thank you for bringing me on. Well, that's very generous for, for parting thoughts. And a good thing you said it too, because the audience is likely skeptical that I could pay you to say it. So I appreciate you <laughs> giving me that plug. Uh, and as Inside Reproductive Health becomes more of a, a platform, you know, perhaps the same guest contributor role that you play in, in, in other publications, we might one day be able to, to make that happen for Inside Reproductive Health. So we'll certainly have you back next year when uh, the numbers of issues that your fund is looking to solve is somewhere in the 30s. And uh, we'll, we'll be happy to have you back. Thanks so much for coming back on, Dr. Sable. Always a pleasure, Griffin. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.